namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. Uh, just a few things that have come up through uh, the interviews. <clears throat> one or two questions. And um, uh, uh, Just to go back to that earlier question about um, when the body is behaving like a sullen, stroppy teenager... <laughs> While the mind is behaving <clears throat> like a hyperactive child with a sugar rush from raspberry cordial, how do you negotiate stillness? So, <clears throat> uh, as I was trying to say, it's not, be careful you don't come to some sort of negotiated agreement with your, <laughs> with your body and mind. Um, it's a case of uh, <clears throat> finding that aloofness <clears throat> and always uh, making that note and then coming back <clears throat> And uh, what you're allowing, <coughs> excuse me, what you're allowing the mind to do is to um, bark, just bark, see, and just let it bark, and then you know barking, barking, and then you just come back, see, <laughs> and, and and your heart when it's doing stuff, you just let it emote, see? and then you just come back, see. You don't, you don't negotiate with it under any circumstance. No treaty. <clears throat> I'll answer these. Uh, these have come up from individuals. Uh, can you say something about our addiction to suffering? <clears throat> uh, I'm not, I, I suppose there is a... You know, we can fall into the era of self-pity... I mean, I think that's probably one of the reasons where we like to hug our suffering and consider how terrible life is, um, turn ourselves into a victim, yeah? So when you find yourself in that sort of self-piteous, victim sort of state, so it's exactly the same thing. It's a case of knowing it, noting it, being aware of it, being aware of your <coughs> relationship to it, the identity, I am a victim. Hmm? And that there is some sort of comfort in that. You know, That's what self-pity does, doesn't it? And then when you realize that actually that's just more suffering, then you give it up. <laughs> and you start being a bit more realistic about your potential. <clears throat> yeah? Things happen. Uh, could you please explain quiet abiding again? I'm not so sure uh, what I have to do. Quiet, I, all, all I'm suggesting with this phrase, quiet abiding, is the four factors of enlightenment, mainly the three, which are the passive factors. So there is awareness, you see, and with that awareness, uh, one stops, see, one opens up to the awareness, and begins to develop a certain calmness, a stillness of the body, calmness of the heart, see? So that's a factor of enlightenment, passivity. <clears throat> um, and just that, 
steadiness of attention. You see? It's keeping the, keeping the mind still. Yeah, steadiness of attention. And, um, yeah, the most important of all, and really, uh, one could go as far as to say one of the, what, the fundamental quality of the Buddha is equanimity. So equanimity means um, it's what you expect of a judge, not to get caught up in something by way of aversion. You don't like the defendant uh, liking somebody, so you don't give them ten years or give them five years instead. Fear, fear that their friends might come and chop you to pieces. And uh, prejudice. So, in other words, equanimity is above I'm right, everybody else is wrong. And it's above that relationship we have with things of fear, greed, and hatred. So that's the the equanimity. It's an attitude, isn't it, equanimity, in this sense. And those four form the platform for your investigation. See? So, from that basic platform, you raise the interest, see? And the interest is pointing, uh, you're investigating the Dharma, the Buddha's teaching. And that's how the insights come. If you're coming from a position, you'll only see what you want to see. See? Uh, do you carry on from where you left off from one sitting to another or is it completely random what you find? Um, I think this question is saying that one sitting is, can be radically different from the other. Uh, well, that just shows us the changing nature of the body and mind, you know, and that we don't have control. So you might have an absolutely blissed out meditation and, and or full of peace and joy and you've sat there in this Great big blancmange. <laughs> and then suddenly you come back thinking, right, here we go again, and you sit down and, and all this grief comes up and anger. And <laughs> so, yeah, uh, that's one of these teachings that uh, we don't control the heart. Yeah? Now, what we want to do is get to a position where it doesn't control us directly, so it doesn't actually hijack us, but we can't stop the heart emoting. We can ignore it, we can place our attention elsewhere, we can push it away, but it's still, you know, it's still churning away within the psyche. And the part of our meditation is this purification. See, the purification of the heart is just part and parcel of the process. And that's the hard bit. I mean, you know, that's, that's what makes it so difficult. I think it's kinder not to have a biscuit. Awful to have to stop at one. That's good. No, that's it, you see. We're contacting real suffering. <laughs> the cause of suffering is the biscuit. Uh, just one or two things from the interviews. Uh, when you're noting, you know, you're not using uh, the pronoun I. Uh, you know, I am breathing and all that, you see. You're taking that away. You're taking, because you're, by disconnecting with something uh, and looking at it, feeling it, 
the I, the connection, is being broken. The identity is being broken. So there's no I there. All there is is rising and falling. Yeah? So <clears throat> try not to use the, this little pronoun. Uh, just to reinforce the fact that you know physical pain coming from the body, um, you just have to be careful with that because that's not coming from emotional stress or anything. That's just coming from the body itself telling you it's, it's, not, it's not happy. So you can stretch, you can push the body so far, but don't push it to a point where it's actually doing, you're doing damage. If, and if you're in doubt, give the benefit of doubt to your body. That's very simple. Yeah? So if your knees are slowly crumbling... They give the benefit of doubt that they will continue to crumble if you don't, if you don't move. <laughs> yeah. In fact, there's one. She's a very good teacher, actually, Mario. And uh, it's a funny story. Well, sort of funny. She was working with my teacher, Ujanika, and uh, she kept saying that the, the pain in the knees were terrible. What should she do? And he gave the usual Burmese thing, you know, go through the pain. Stay with the pain. You know, don't come off the pain. Stay with it. So she went through the pain, and she actually damaged her knees. So the next time she went to work with him, she said to him, um, you know, I, uh, the pain in the knees, and I've got some damage in it. He says, oh, well, sit on a chair. He could have, <laughs> could have wrung his neck. <laughs> Counting the breath, uh, sorry, lazy uh, just to stress this, laziness is very, very subtle, isn't it? Um, it always gives you a nice little excuse. You know, don't try too hard. See, relax. Ah. There's a, in in the book um, Living Buddhist Masters, which is a lovely classic book written by um, Cornfield, uh, Jack Cornfield. It's always worth a good read. And what he's done is he interviewed all these famous teachers at the time and wrote their. Uh, their thoughts, their understanding, and their methodology. And one of the most remarkable was um, a monk called Sun Lun in Burma. And uh, when somebody told him about meditation, he went and sat under this tree, and within six weeks he'd liberated. And uh, they wouldn't believe it. Uh, he then joined the order, and uh, they wouldn't believe that what he was saying. So they had a big... Um, interview with him, all these people who thought they knew something, but they did all agree that he'd actually attained liberation. So then he began to teach this methodology, which is really strange in, in, uh, in Theravada terms, because you, you breathe like a steam engine. You know, you're doing that connected breathing. And you do it, and you do it, and you <laughs> until you get to this point where the, the pain is so great that the whole thing seizes. <laughs> and when the pain disappears, there's, a, there's purification. And uh, I tried it. I just, just got dizzy. <laughs> and uh, they said to me, why is it people you know, don't make it? Why is it people don't, uh, don't um, get liberated and stuff? He says, because they're lazy. It's a big one, laziness. So, uh, you know, be clear that this is not tiredness. This is laziness. Uh, living Buddhist masters. No, it's no, it's living Buddhist masters. I know, I I remember that because now they're all dead apart from one. Oh, is that right? Okay. Great. 
The book is great Buddhist masters now who have passed on. Uh, counting the breath, uh, that is a, a regular technique, but it's a samatha technique. It's a technique to do with building up one-pointedness, concentration. Uh, and so there's no insight there as such, see? So it's not something that um, in this technique is, uh, is encouraged. And, and your noting should take the place of that, really. Uh, sometimes in a retreat, of course, you're opening up to yourself, so you get these very violent bursts of emotion sometimes. So when that happens, you know, if you really feel you can't handle it, just make sure that you see myself or Penny, you see. Just so you have a, you know, somebody to encourage you to go through it. Uh, it's often the case that with some people who've never had such an experience, it really freaks them out. But once you've been through that sort of storm, uh, you've got the, the courage then, you see. You can go through anything after that, sort of. Uh, noting, you see. Remember your noting process. Remember your noting process. So when you're putting your coat on, uh, what you're noting is uh, the pulling and the, and, and the stretching and the touching of the, of the coat onto your, onto your body. Right? You're, not, um, you're not noting coat, I once at Camden Boulder, there was a Western had come, and he, he approached me. Um, I was in retreat, but he approached me, and he, he asked me about the noting. So I said, well, what were you instructed? He said, well, just note what you're experiencing. I said, well, what? I said, uh, what, what do you do? So at mealtime, he said, well, I note um, potato, carrot. <laughs> I said, well, you become a good cook. Sleep patterns. I don't know whether you know this, but we sleep in one and three-quarter sleep patterns, one and three-quarter hour sleep patterns. And it's the first two, three, one and three-quarter hours where we touch this deep sleep, without which you, you never feel you've really slept. So that's important, the first four hours. And in fact, in the Buddha's teachings, I mean, even on retreat, if you go, uh, if you go beyond seven, eight days, then normally, if you're working with me, I suggest you might push your sleep back to four hours. That sounds horrific, but actually, uh, that's all you need when you're doing nothing, for heaven's sake. So, uh, that, uh, in the Buddhist teaching, it's the first watch of the night, which is ten to two. Uh, hold on. Uh, six to ten. And then you sleep ten to two, and then you meditate two to six. And then you go out on Pindapad looking for a bit of food. So you need it. So... <laughs> That, uh, that sleep pattern is three and a half hours and then five and a quarter, you see. And uh, if you wake up as the mind's coming out from sleep, as, it rises like that, you see, then you feel refreshed. But if you wake up at the bottom of this trough, then that's when you feel disoriented and horrible, you see. So going to bed tonight at 10 o'clock, you see, the bell goes at four, but with a bit of luck, you're already sort of rising out of sleep before that, you see. Yes, five and a half. <laughs> so that's why these times are put up, you see. And the next one is seven hours. I know a lot of people sleep eight, but that's, that's just because they've been told eight hours is necessary. Breath. Uh, as you move into the breath, you see, so there's the concept Rising, falling. That's a that's a, a, a words. See, rising, falling. 
There's also the image. You've got an image of your stomach rising and falling. Or if you're watching at the nostrils here. And there's just feeling. Now, the feeling is what's actually happening. The other stuff, the rising and falling, and the image are concepts. So that's why we're using the word in order to push ourselves towards just the feeling. Just the feeling, you see? And hopefully, just occasionally, that's what will happen. The mind will stop, it'll cut out, and there'll be just the feeling of the rising and falling, you see? At that point, you see, what the meditator knows is that this intelligence has completely exited from the intellect. Right? It's not being confused by uh, images and thinking. And these things happen only in little blips and blobs, you see. So they're very powerful moments. It would only be on a very long retreat that you might be able to extend those moments you know, a little bit. But they're like little darts. So uh, do keep these questions coming, you know, as you, uh, and every evening, either myself or Penny will try and give uh, some answer. So tonight, what's important is to um, really revise for most of, for a lot of you, but also to introduce people to um, these hindrances. <clears throat> and uh, before I go to that, I just want you to uh, know that the Buddha had a schema which equates a lot to our own modern understanding. He had three, uh, three, three ways of looking at, our, uh, at the unwholesome, unwholesome mind. Huh? What, uh, the first one was the anusaya, which translates as proclivities or tendencies. And these are your, uh, the potential within us which, unless there's a catalyst, unless something actually presses a button, they just remain there. Yeah? Now, most of them won't come as a surprise. Um, there's greed, of course. Uh, here it's translated as grudge, but it's just basically hatred. Speculative opinions. Yeah? Skeptical doubt, conceit. Now, you can see from those three that there's a lot to do with the way we think about things. Yeah. The way we actually understand things is, is kernel to the Buddha's teaching. So that's the first of the Noble Eightfold Path, right understanding, you see. And it's from that wrong understanding that all the misery arises. So the Buddha's teaching is very much a path of uh, investigation and understanding what the causes of the problems are. See, And, um, and the effect of that is at the heart level, as a... As, a, um, as an attitude, is the usual greed, hatred, and so on. And there's, uh, there's one here which is actually, it's only put here as craving for continued existence, but in the formulation of the Four Noble Truths, the, uh, the actual greed is, is put as greed for sensual pleasure, which is a misunderstanding that sensual pleasure is happiness, a... Craving for continued existence, right? And a craving for annihilation. So, you know, that comes as a surprise to most people. Because you, you, you presume annihilation is suicide, and not many people get as far as that. But as, uh, as we go through the hindrances, you'll see that actually dullness and lethargy are the products of just wanting to disappear. Huh? 
I'll come into that a little bit later. But what's important here is to recognize that the Buddhas, in the Buddha's teaching, there are these potentials within the system, right? And they remain there until something pushes that button, see? And in meditation in Vipassana, we're not specifically pushing buttons, we're just allowing the heart to express these proclivities, see? Then uh, he, the, the next thing that he often talks about are the kilesa, which are the defilements. Uh, as you know, Buddhism, especially Theravada Buddhism, is full of lists. Uh, ten of these, four of those, one of them. And I, I never got around to learning these. <laughs> so these ten, you see, they, but, this, but this tells you a little bit more about how they manifest. So there's the greed, the hatred, and the delusion. Uh, then there's the conceit. So conceit's a funny one because we normally think of conceit of I am better than you, but there's also I am worse than you. It's an inverted conceit. Huh? And the more subtle one, of course, is I'm equal to you. And when you look at that carefully, what you're doing is creating a group conceit. See, I'm equal to you, that's great. Anybody not equal to us is less, and everybody either less or, or better than us. See? Uh, speculative views about uh, life and etc. Skeptical doubt, we'll come to that in the um, hindrances. Mental torpor, restlessness, so we'll also come to that. Shamelessness and lack of moral dread. Uh, just very quickly, the Buddha's understanding is that guilt and shame are actually guardians of society. He doesn't, he doesn't talk about them being wholesome states. They're, they're negative states to have. They're not particularly pleasant. But what they do is they prevent us from doing what is unwholesome. So when we do something which, is, um, which we feel guilty about, which we feel... Uh, that there may be some consequences that we don't like out in the world, and the shame, which is feeling that we've let ourselves down, let ourselves down in the eyes of others, that sense of embarrassment, shame. When we actually feel those mental states, then as we approach a similar action, that memory comes up, stops us doing it, because you don't want to go there. So in that sense, they're guardians of um, our own guardians, but guardians of society, you see. Um, we see these days a sort of certain shamelessness about, you know, um, just getting absolutely drunk, palatic. Uh, can't remember what the word they use now. Ruined, is it? Completely. <laughs> I've lost contact with clubbing. <laughs> Those are the days. So now we have to actually go on to these uh, hindrances. So now... Uh, this is the Buddha's own classification of what we experience through the meditation, in our meditation, uh, by way of the negative side. See, um, In a couple of days I'll be talking about the more positive side, which are the uh, facts of enlightenment, which we've touched upon with this quiet abiding. So um, when we sit, uh, we can begin to categorize these different types of mental states that arise, and each one should present us with uh, some methodology on how to deal with it. <clears throat> now, take, for instance, uh, the whole business of greed, or when I say greed, it means anything that, <clears throat> that you desire. Um, it may be, I mean, it could be anything, you know, lust, greed, 
power, fame, all that sort of stuff. But if we take a very simple one like a holiday in Acapulco, see? I don't know why I always say Acapulco. Anyway, Acapulco. So there you are, you see. One minute you're, you're in Acapulco, you see? And then you note uh, dreaming, dreaming, you see. So when you come back into the body, you're trying to contact the feeling. Now, it might be that there is no feeling there. The mind is just enjoying a bit of Acapulco. So you know that, you come back to the breath. Now, because uh, with some of us, not all of us, but uh, it depends, you see, uh, some of us have lifted the emotion so much into the head that actually we don't feel emotions as emotions. We're just, uh, what we are is in that dream world, you see. Now, by constantly noting and coming back, constantly noting and coming back, this emotion doesn't have, loses its pathway into the mind, into, into the imagination, and therefore begins to manifest in the body, you see. And that's a good sign to a meditator, that they're actually contacting the feeling, the emotional drive which is creating uh, the mental states. So uh, here we are, we're in Acapulco, dreaming, 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 you see. Uh, planning, planning, that's always the regular one, isn't it? Planning, planning. So trying to escape the moment, you see. So planning, so you come back, okay. Now there's nothing, there's nothing there, so you go back, to the, uh, go back to the breath, but within seconds you're back up there, you see. So the whole meditation is just coming off, you know, the Acapulco. So that's it. I mean, that's the practice, see. At the end of it, you might say to yourself, well, that was useless, but it wasn't useless. That's the training. That's keep coming back to the present moment. Now, sometimes you, you note that and you come back to the breath, but you see, although you've been gentle with the, the Acapulco, you've sort of said, dreaming, dreaming, ah, you see. You come back and you come back to the You don't make a real commitment to stay there. You don't make that sort of, mm, you know. And this, this energy sort of keeps moving this way, you see. And before you know it, you shoot off. Now, if you, when you come back to the breath, you make a determination to stay there, but you keep your attention, shall we say, uh, fairly loose around the breath. You're not trying to concentrate around it. Perhaps you can feel that energy wanting to go back into the dream. Yeah, that's the desire, see? And just to stay there with that, you see. Hmm? I don't know why. With me, it's always up there to the right. Strange. So you keep, keep, keep your attention on that. And then as it goes away, as that drains of energy, the stillness arises. So this, this, this wanting, this wanting is an energy arising out of that fundamental emotional state, you see. And, that's a, and if you can just stay with it till it passes, till it passes, no matter how difficult it feels, sometimes it's really got some energy, then it drops. Now if you don't make the effort, you see, if you don't make the effort to do that, every time this energy moves and creates a dream, it's actually developing itself, see? It's not a case of just turning the... It's not just a case of, oh, I'm dreaming again. The fact is, the more we allow the dream to take hold of us, the more we're establishing that relationship of this is where happiness is. So now this tells us that the way we develop an emotion is through our thought patterns. That's why they're so dangerous, Hmm? That's why when you talk to yourself, and you, you, know, you have to recognize that dialogue and what the dialogue's doing and change the dialogue around. See? And that has the reverse effect. So once you catch 
you know, how dangerous the mind can be, then you really make that effort to come off it. Okay. Now, it's exactly the same with the, with the, the, the obverse of that, which is anxiety, uh, hatred, anger, grudge, all that sort of stuff. Um, just, just, rem- just bring to mind times that you've been irritated, just slightly irritated. It might be not work and somebody done something or said something, and there's a little sort of irritation comes up, you know. But you sort of bat it out of the way. You sort of, you know, it's just the way it is. And you get on with your work and all that. And then there comes this break with a cup of tea. And uh, as you're drinking, it comes down. Do you want to say that to me? <laughs> and, then, and then you bat that out of the way. And lunchtime, it's... <laughs> and you end up in the evening with a headache, Prozac. It's a, it's a sort of a horror story. And it's all, it's all been generated by this allowing the mind to just take up some emotional state and create a dream out of it. See? So the more we recognize the danger of the mind, the more we won't let it off the tether. You see? You keep making that special effort to just keep bringing yourself down, keep bringing yourself back to the present moment. Uh, the fourth one is, I'm missing the third one, which is the dullness and lethargy, I'll come to that in a minute, is the restlessness. So this is very much connected to uh, the agitation in the mind, and it can express itself through the body. So now, um, that agitation of the body can be, can be very difficult to be with. I mean, it can be quite violent in its own way. And one little, one way of dealing with it is to start from the top of your head, you see, and just come down the body slowly. By moving the attention, uh, you're drawing a little bit of energy out of the system into the attending. So that helps. And as you come down the body, you see, just by coming down the body like that, it actually has an effect of calming. Right? Because where your attention is, that's where the energy is. So by bringing your attention down the body, you see, but what you're looking at is sensations. And become aware of parts of the body which aren't restless. You know, where is it that you're actually experiencing restlessness as such? See? And then when you find that uh, a specific area in the chest or your legs or your stomach, you see, then keep, keep, keep sort of combing it downwards, you see? And that helps it just to calm, just to sort of bring it to a manageable state. But your intention is to observe it, to find out what restlessness is before you call it restlessness. Remember, these are all concepts in the mind. What's it, what's it made of? What, what, what factors make up the idea of restlessness? Yeah? And, of course, what you're also uh, interested in is your relationship to restlessness. Yeah? You know, not wanting it, resisting it, pushing it away, etc., etc. So you're also aware of that process of... Uh, I mean, the Pali word is tanha, uh, wrong desire... Uh, unfortunately, it's translated as, as craving, which is often a bit too strong. And desire has a, can be a good desire. So it's very difficult to translate that word in, uh, in English. But, but it's the desire arising out of wrong understanding. See, And running along that is another word um, which translates as, or really to me anyway, it translates that whole area of shame, remorse and guilt. 
And uh, that can make you very fidgety, yeah, guilt, hmm? paranoia and all that. So again, these are very, sometimes very difficult mental states to be with, to actually feel, you know, they can be quite ugly states. So when we feel that resistance to really accept, to really put the attention on, on that feeling of resisting, of not wanting to go there, you see, and then wait for it to pass a little bit and go back to the original state, see, until all the resistance has disappeared. And then, of course, the, um, what needs to be expressed will express itself. Now, um, remember that the object has never been the direct cause of a mental state, of, a, of an emotional state. Right? Somebody being rude to us has not been the direct cause of our anger. It's been a catalyst, it's been something that's pushed the button, but it's not actually been the cause of our anger. The anger, the depression, the anxiety, all that is a reaction to a given object. Now that means that the, these emotional states are not attached to an object, you see. They are, as it were, potentials within the system. And one way that I look at it is like a balloon that's blown up. So you've got this balloon of potential anger. Hmm? Now what happens is somebody pricks the balloon and all the air wants to get out through that little hole. And that's where you get these inappropriate responses. Right? When we know that, you see, then we're never concerned about the object. We're always concerned about the reaction to it. Because that's where the healing that's where the liberation from these uh, toxic states uh, takes place. So whenever we feel something as, as touched upon, you know, pressed a button, touched upon a sore point, you see, that for us, you see, is a, is a moment of purification. That's a moment to greet and to hug and say, ah, depression, how wonderful. And you, and you, <laughs> and you stay with it and feel it, let it come out, you see, no matter how horrible it is. And all the time by doing that, there's this process of liberation from, of, uh, from the process of, of that energy exhausting itself. But also there is the slow realization of liberation from it, which means it's not me, not mine. See, you're finding an aloofness to it. So that's where your insight is. To be able to slowly undermine your identity with emotional states and with thoughts. Um, yeah. The third one is what uh, my old teacher used to call our two very good friends. Dullness and lethargy. They sort of sneak up on us and say, you've worked very hard. You really are tired. You need a kip. You need a power nap. <laughs> See? <laughs> so, <laughs> beware of dullness and lethargy. Uh, this is now the third day, and uh, definitely by the end of tomorrow, we can put away any idea of, of any dullness and lethargy arising in the day as being real tiredness. So you don't be, do not confuse yourself with real tiredness. So the first three days, we're sort of straightening out the system. Uh, 
hopefully your sleep pattern is, is a bit more balanced and all that. So from now on, especially after tomorrow, any feelings of dullness and lethargy must be, uh, we must be brutally honest and uh, name them for what they are, dullness and lethargy. So when dullness comes, it's like porridge, isn't it? Your head turns into this sort of porridge. Now, because of our association, because of our uh, identification with these mental states, it's very difficult to get a perspective within that cloud. Hmm? But if you, keep, if you keep making the effort to observe the sensations of dullness, hmm? keep making it, you'll be surprised how, you, how the light bulb goes on and you're as bright as a button within this porridge. And when you're like that, then you know uh, that the problem has never been the dullness itself, but the association that we have with it and the way we've so easily given into it. Um, and it's the same with the body. The body feels really heavy, uh, can feel enormously heavy. So um, in your meditation, remember, you can open your eyes a bit. It's the same with dullness, of course. Open the eyes a bit, stand up. Yeah, and if it gets ridiculous, you go for a walk, see? You know, take, you know, like I say, take the big fat dog for a walk. Just keep walking up and down. Come on, boy, come on. And you go up and down. And what you're doing, you're not trying to get rid of it, you see? You're never trying to destroy these mental states. That's an immediate aggression. You're just walking with it, that's all, being awake with it, and it passes. Now, when it passes, uh, you may be surprised to find sometimes that it just flips and it turns into this awesome restlessness. And that tells you that, in fact, it's the same energy. One is drawing you down into a black hole, and the other <laughs> one's just bursting you out into the universe. Sometimes you get this beautiful uh, uh, energy, which is very, very, uh, a very level, and, and it's, it's like it eases off into this beautiful energy. So at this point, at least I say to myself, uh, this, there's been some real cleansing here. There's been some letting go, uh, allowing some turbulence to manifest and, and, and exhaust itself. Now, where has all this dullness and lethargy, why has it appeared, you see? Well, uh, this is the same with all pleasure. Uh, not all the time, uh, but we can say that this is the psychology around pleasure. And the Buddha is very clear about this. The pleasure itself uh, is the obvious reason as to why we're, in, why we're indulging in it. Right? So um, because you feel a bit tired, because you feel a bit uh, down, it's really lovely just to lay the body out and just disappear into this lovely sleep. But we've also done it Always because of some, uh, not always, I should say always, but we often do it because we're escaping something that we don't want. So you might have noticed that when something's boring, you immediately want to go to sleep. When something gets a bit heavy, you think, ah, oh, well, I'll have a little kip here, you see. So this sleep business, this sleeping, uh, is partly also an escape, and that's your desire for self-annihilation. See? So as soon as something gets a bit heavy, you can't take it, it's head for the bed. See? And you just launch yourself into this beautiful oblivion. And when you wake up, generally you feel better. But it's been a suppressive measure. Yeah? And because it's all suppressed, that's what we 
experience as depression. And it's when often the depression comes up that, in a sense, it won't manifest what its constituents are. And it's only after a while that suddenly um, the depression might begin to soften and it comes up with its suppressed feeling, which is anger, grief, could be anything at all, doesn't matter. And what's making it suppressed is this, is this fear of it, the anger of it, and laying on top of that this, this, this dullness, this lethargy, just quietly pushing it down, you see. So uh, it's a big hindrance, you see. Everybody has these hindrances. Some people have more of one than others. Some parts of your life you tend to be having one, and then that seems to disappear, and then you've got the other. Uh, but generally speaking, everybody has all, the, all of them. Now, when this dullness and lethargy comes up, um, that's how you work with it. You refuse, under all circumstances, to be annihilated. Huh? Absolutely firm uh, as you can be. Completely refuse to be annihilated. And then you stay awake. Under all circumstances, you stay awake. Hmm? And you do whatever you can to stay awake and attend to it, see? Remember, don't try and get rid of it or else you're into a battle. So you're attending to it. And you just have to have the patience for it to die away, okay? And every time from then on, there's, this, there's these little, um, little slimy devils come up and say, go on, have a kip. See, you point to it and say, ah, that's dullness, that's lethargy. See, don't be, don't be fooled ever into falling into that error. See? Don't look at me so serious. So, <laughs> so that's, that's dealing with, with dullness and lethargy. And remember, all of this, you have to take into daily life, all of it. I know it's, it's, it's a pain, really, but all of it. You can't just come and sit here in agony for a few days and then think, that's it, I'm back, back on the old roller coaster. You've got to actually take this into your daily life and any time you notice these hindrances coming up, you see, you have to be very quick and just work with it. And then finally, there's a sceptical doubt. Now, uh, uh, doubt in, in the sense of wonder is the actual, mental, uh, is the actual um, virtue the Buddha would want us to develop. So he puts forward um, his ideas, his hypothesis, you see, there is suffering, there is an end to suffering. So it's for us to actually investigate that. Belief would, um, would in fact be a hindrance in, in, uh, in the Buddha's understanding because then you would simply believe. You know, you'd bow to the Buddha, light a few candles and think that was it. But it's not. It's a case of investigation. So that interest is empowered by the question, well, is this true? Is this true for me? Is, this, is, this, you know, is, is it right? But the other type of doubt is different. The sceptical doubt is the doubt which stops you investigating. Sceptical doubt normally sits on fear, fear of failure, fear of consequences, hmm? so that uh, a person might read about meditation, but, oh, I don't know about this, and then never actually try it. And that's when sceptical doubt undermines your spiritual life, and it's probably the most uh, insidious, really, because it always gives you a good reason, you see. Skeptical doubt in daily life is a real killer of your potential. So, you, you, you know, you, you, you find a nice relationship, but there's this, well, I don't know whether I could or go now. You know, when I think about, well, I don't know. So you never met, and of course, the person's gone off, found somebody better. 
And then you, <laughs> or you get a job, you know, you apply for a job, and then there's this, now I don't know whether I can. Before you know it, the job's gone. So a skeptical doubt is something that uh, can really undermine the potential of your life. So when you find yourself in that sort of state, you know, you just, uh, you just swallow and go for it, you know, hope for the best. With reason, of course, with reason, always with reason. So those are your uh, five hindrances. That's the way the Buddha classifies our negative mental states, right? You, can, you should be able to fit any negative state that comes into one of these five categories. It'll either fall into some form of desire, seeking happiness in some form of worldly, sensual, transient, impermanent pleasure. No matter how wonderful it is, no matter music, art, it doesn't matter what it is. It can be, the, it can be spiritual joys. As soon as you attach to it and think, well, this is, this is where real happiness is, that's where uh, you find the suffering. All the negativity, see, all the negativity. Yeah? On the one side, all the aversions. On the other side, all the fears. See? Uh, this dullness and lethargy. Yeah? Restlessness, which is a sort of catch-all, really. And all that area to do with the... Um, the consequence of doing harm, guilt, shame, remorse, and finally this sceptical doubt. So when these things come up, you see, one way of noting them is to categorize it. This is doubt, this is hatred, and so on. And then what should come to mind is what to do, see, how to deal with it in a way that that conditioning is burning out. So, in the Buddha's words, we have to see how they arise, how they disappear, and how they will never arise again. That's the way he puts it. I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. By your constant engagement, successful engagement, with the hindrances, may you soon be purified and attain to that wonderful state of pure liberation sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.